0: Internal monologue in this episode we're going to be covering baptism of fire chapter one uh so this is an is a book that uh sort of is primarily geralt focused i often call it the geralt book uh tower swallows being the siri book in my opinion a lot of the major characters like yen and siri they're in here but they're not as prevalent. Yann uh, only gets one or two scenes. Siri occasionally gets in flashes, like we in this chapter. But for the most part, we are following Geralt um, and some other side stuff going on, like uh, Philippa and whatnot. Uh, as they continue their journey towards going to a way that the reader knows is completely wrong. You know, Geralt is attempting to go rescue Ciri from Nilfgaard, uh, and, of course, that's not really Ciri. We know that Ciri is not there. Um, And so, uh, there's this entire thing of we are basically watching one of our heroes um, basically go on a foolish mission a mission that we the audience know cannot be done because it's just not gonna succeed um and and that provides an interesting lens through which to view this uh this book uh is because it is the Geralt book it's the book that Geralt is called out on all the shit that we have seen him uh do and or feel from the short stories all the way the past two books um and he starts gathering a party I uh, mean, uh, me uh, Josh talked about this a little bit. Uh, he picked the chapter in Time of Contempt, which uh, is actually seen from a different angle in this chapter. Um, and I talked about how the, you know, baptism and the has sort of a DD and d feel. We're going to start picking up party members or for Geralt's company or as Geralt's Hansa. Um, and the first of which, of course, is Milva. It has a different feel. Um... Than the the other books, uh, and some people consider it their favorite. It's personally not my favorite. It, it's certainly a really good book. Uh, as I mentioned, *Time of Contempt* is probably my favorite, but I really, really, really love *Tower Swallows* and uh, *Lady of the Lake*, um, and uh, batches of Fire* has a lot of really great moments. We'll be getting to that, uh, you know, especially in Chapter 3 and some stuff uh, in Chapters 4 and 5 as well. Uh, and, of course, the ending is spectacular. But what really drives this book um, is a and d feel. And for people who want that, that's great. You know, your more traditional fantasy-style group of adventures going out of course there's the irony there and the twist ultimately where we know that it's a mission doomed to fail but um it's not really what i'm looking for it's a good book don't get me wrong um and we'll explore some very interesting tidbits as we go on but it's certainly not my favorite of the uh, of the books um i i think it is maybe you know ranking maybe just above Blood of Elves. Blood of Elves has a lot of pacing issues that I talked about. Um this doesn't have that issue. I just it's just not exactly what I want fully. Um and the other books have that more in line with what I'm looking for. Like I said, this is more of your D D party goes in that goes out on an adventure. Um and it is the Geralt Growth book. Um, and I'm far more interested in the Geralt growth book than I am in the, the d d party. Um, so this chapter can be kind of best divided into three sections with a small subsection of Ciri. Um, so, you know, we, we see that Ciri, um, you know, he, he, she has become one with the rats now. She's Volca. There's like this image about them. Uh, as we see at the end of uh, that, they are renegades, they're rebels. They they they, uh, say fuck you to authority, and as such, they have become sort of legendary. Um, and kids look up to them. Uh, people lie to uh, uh bounty hunters and stuff like that uh, to keep them safe, even though there is no like, real incentive to like they they are shown to give out money, but it is. Ultimately, just for the sake of appearances, you can tell none of them really care about that. It's far more about anger and hate, as I mentioned last time when we met the rats um, and what they did to Siri. And of course, that, you know, we're, we're seeing the Stockholm Syndrome come full circle with Siri lovingly holding hands with Missile and feeling like, you know, this is the best thing in the world. And we see when, um, she gets really close to this guy to intimidate him She has nothing but pure evil and hate in her eyes She's, the, 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 the way it's described is that Sapkowski intentionally does not use the word Siri The entire time we are seeing the effects of her through someone else uh, And as such, they only know her as Falka We do not have the impetus to see her in that light Because we know her so we view her from another person, and she's fucking scary. She has become all her worst impulses. There is nothing but pure evil there right now. And we will come back to that later. But as you can see, the rants have basically warped her. Um, and uh, she has become nothing but a contemptible human being. A child of contempt. Um, and that is... Um, exactly what we expect from uh, from the end of last book but it's just really sad and we'll get more into that in here in a bit uh you know uh, in future chapters there's one particular scene i'll draw attention to when we get to it that really shows how far she has fallen and what's sad is she still got more to go before she can maybe potentially crawl herself out the entire rats thing is just ugh, it's icky but it's that kind of ickiness that's intentional Um, and I don't think a lot of people understand what is going for here. It's a corruption arc. There's a redemption arc, uh, is a very common literary method. Very rarely do you see a corruption arc. A lot of times when those happen, people get up in arms because they don't like to see their heroes be bad. Um, and I think that's ridiculous. I think it's okay. Um, and so Ciri, our beautiful, wonderful child, has become nothing but a murderer. Um, and that is the way she's gonna be for a while now. So, the Milva and Geralt side of this chapter. We finally meet Milva. She was m- name dropped in Time of Contempt. Th- this is something that uh, is a bit sad because I can't really experience it. Of the way she is designed to talk in the Polish original um, is she has a very country accent, like a very farmer type way of speaking. Um, which comes from her, her her upbringing and stuff like that. But in the English translation, they don't carry quite the same syntax to it. So she does talk in a very abrasive manner, but it's not the same way. And so, uh, you know, there's there's this disconnect there with the the way characters kind of treat her and the way she talks that is a result of the translation and there are many more other translation issues that will come to as time goes on the most egregious one is in the next book as follows but you know it's worth mentioning uh, that that does affect the way I interpret the character because I know how she's supposed to be and how the English translation uses her is different um, by virtue of the fact that Polish and English are very different languages and thus transferring words over is not going to cut it. You have to localize as well and sometimes that is done well and sometimes that's done very poorly. Uh, but Milva, we you know she's she's described later in this book. Uh, by Geralt as the Dryad who's not a Dryad. Uh, And I think that's a beautiful description of her. She is a hunter, uh, and she's human, and she's never been part of the Dryads, not formally. She never drank from the waters of Brooklyn. She was never turned into that, as we saw in sort of Destiny. But uh, she is kind of a woman between worlds of... She was a noble... Uh, the the Bahrain's were a small nobility family, very small, insignificant in the large scheme of things, in Sodden. Uh And through one reason or another, which we'll get into later, uh, when more information about her time with her father is revealed, um, you know, she ended up not being a noble anymore, and uh, and at one point was almost hanged for something, and the Triad saved her. Uh, but took pity on her, instead of turning her into one, decided to use her, uh, and so now she is basically a, uh, a gopher. Uh, go for this, go for that kind of thing, where she is helping Scoia'tael in, in any uh, other kind of, um, you know, uh, Elder race, so uh, you know, regardless if they're square tell or not, to get the Brokloan for safety, because the forest of Broke alone you know, it may technically be part of one particular country, but well, that uh, people are fucking scared of it, so very few people wander in there, and as such, uh, it's a good place for sanctuary, which is what Geralt's using it for at the moment as well, um, and basically. Uh, she is a noble who acts like a commoner, who uh, is a girl you know, who uh, wears and does traditionally masculine things. Uh, she is a human that respects elves, and she's a human that lives among dryads. Uh, she is a person stuck between different worlds of what she is and what she's not, and uh, and sort of what she's told she is, and what she feels she is, and of course this is all symbolic of in general, as everything I've been talking about with Siri, but also uh, this is important to talk about as uh, the Hansa builds up, which we'll get to in a few chapters' time, of outcasts within outcasts, uh, people who are outsiders to their own selves, as well as to the group, um, and how that brings them together. Milva is an interesting person when it comes to dealing with Geralt, because Geralt is a stubborn son of a bitch, as we've talked about a thousand times. Hell, the an excerpt that opens this chapter is literally all about him being fucking stubborn and not listening, and basically saying that, you know, what what you are told you are and what you feel you are and, uh, and how his... Uh, in, in how his stubbornness will only lead him to sadness and tragedy. Um, that basically, Milf is someone who doesn't take the crap. She's not interested in that. She wants to go to the chase immediately. There's a character introduced in the next book that will call her Auntie. Um, and I definitely see it, you know, uh, that the very stern but cool aunt. But I always get the vibe from her, and we'll get to this later, of she's she's the mom of the group. That she's gonna tell you what she thinks. She wants to, you to be a better person. She wants you to fucking listen. And you better fucking listen. And, um... You know, I think that really comes into play not only in the way she acts, but the way she treats Geralt. Um, at first, she has w- wants nothing to do with him. But the moment he starts showing emotion, not emotion of anything about himself, but emotion towards Ciri in particular. Uh, you know, she, she mentions the thing about Ciri, and that's when Geralt sort of gets serious about the situation and very, very cold and sad. That's when she starts taking him much more seriously, and it's the the understanding of caring, uh, knowing that someone has to make their own choices, but still wanting to guide them. The motherly instinct, the paternal instinct, uh, and so she relates to Geralt as the dad, even though she is not a mom, and how that 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 works, and that that's all leading up to a thing in, in in later bits, where um, I won't talk about this in the spoiler section, but, you know, that uh, there there is a reason that the symbology of the maternal and paternal instincts are there, and we'll get to that in a bit. And, and I like how she at first refuses to go with Geralt, and basically tells him, what you were trying to do is not only incredibly stupid and foolhardy, and is most likely going to go nowhere, but it's also guaranteed to be a suicide mission. You want to rescue Siri, the now Empress of Nilfgaard, to rescue her and get her from Emir. You want to go and steal the Empress. You want to know how stupid that is? Of course, we, in the audience, know that it is stupid because it's not actually Siri. It's fal- false Siri or fake Siri. But that doesn't matter in Geralt's eyes and everybody else's at the moment. They think that's the real Siri. And so. Uh, you know, there's, there's just this bit of, we know it's a suicide mission because not when Geralt gets there, he'll realize it wasn't even the right way to go the entire time he's been traveling in the wrong direction. Uh, and of course, once she figures out Geralt is a sad, lonely man. And, you know, he's tra- he, thanks to Time of Contempt, because this is this portion of the chapter is a view of that chapter from Time of Contempt from Milva's perspective, we know he's traveling with Dandelion. But the thing about this is Dandelion knows Geralt. He knows him very well. In fact, they're best friends. Geralt needs someone who doesn't know him that well, who is in some ways a stranger to him. And he is a stranger to her. So that she can call him out on this bullshit, and say no, because then lion, as much as he cares, um, you know, will ultimately let Geralt get away with some stuff that others would not, because they're good friends and they understand each other. They, he needs someone to tell him no, which is why she turns around and decides to go join him Uh, at the end of the chapter. The Dijkstra side of this chapter, Dijkstra is in his, uh, you know, weird position where he is simultaneously working with Philippa, while also working against Philippa, working with Nilfgaard while also working against Nilfgaard. Not the king, but is the king. Uh, there's a lot of, in this in the series, I've talked about it at length before, but especially in this chapter, there's a lot of, uh, you are and you are not, you know, things going on where you are something, but you don't feel it. So, like, he cares a great deal about Philip, but he's still clearly in love with her. Uh, as we well know, She no longer in love with him, really. She cares for him in some way that, you know, is unique to her and her mindset. But, you know, she has pretty much given up on men and she has, you know, uh, you know pretty much become women-exclusive in her romance life, even though she is bisexual. And he is trying to combat that and trying to uh, figure out a way to navigate the relationship while still expressing his care for her. At the same time, he also needs to keep information from her uh, so that he can run Redania, you know, separately because he fears that she has other issues other motives going on here. Uh, and we also see that, you know, he wants he wants to get at Geralt for breaking his leg. Um, and uh, But he realizes that he can use some of the situations for himself and is, is perhaps going to use that to win the favor of Philippa. Um, and he knows that uh, he, he wants to hold a grudge against Geralt, but also knows that Geralt doesn't suffer fools. Um, and so... And everybody kind of knows that, even him, that if Geralt tries to go to get Siri, it's going to end in tragedy and it's not going to work out well. And uh, his conversation with Fitz uh which of course uh, is a great duality where you have ambassadors, basically, who know that they are a war but war has not officially been declared, so they're kind of edging around the concept and basically making thinly veiled threats of just pure, you know, assery, basically, in an attempt to provoke the other. But Fist-Osterland... Uh, let's, let's loose a small detail that, you know, they're actually having a conversation about extradition of criminals, um, and, uh, how, uh, Dijkstra wants Vilgefortz, as well as a few others, uh, that was responsible for Thanid to be extradited from Nilfgaard to Redania, and then Redania wants Kahir to be extradited, uh, you know, from Redania to Nilfgaard. And of course they can't they can't compromise on this because of the extradition treaties, as well as the fact that they know they're about to be at war, and so there's no real reason to give in, because ultimately it will just fall apart anyway. Cause Fisosterlin asked for Kahir, and Kahir was tasked with fighting theory, and Dijkstra knew this specifically when he was at Fanid, that that tells Dijkstra it's not something up and up with uh uh, with, uh, Siri and that maybe that isn't the real Siri, and so that's leading him into his own investigations. I also like how effectively he is the de facto ruler of Redania. Uh, King Vizimir is dead, uh, there's a Regency Council, uh, but, you know, uh, Dijkstra is the head of it, he's also the head of the Secret Service, he, you know, he's a spy, and, uh, but he refuses to just like I'm not the king. I, and he he has no interest in even usurping the title in any way or claiming he's the head uh, regent. He's just I'm I'm the spy master. You yeah. know. Um Destra in a very weird way it's patriotic. Um patriotic not necessarily of uh you know uh my um, my country is the best thing ever, and, uh, you know, nothing can ever compare. He's patriotic in the way that, I would say, Londo and Jakar are in Babylon 5. That, in a way, it's not necessarily patriotism and jingoism. There, there is some of that, certainly. But it's more about, I want to help my country in any way possible. And as far as he's concerned, ruling from the shadows is a safer position um and is guaranteed to let him get away with some stuff that people would not allow that he believes will ultimately benefit them so it's a it's a it's a more subdued version of patriotism the Lodge part of this, or the Lodge of Sorceresses, will become known. It doesn't officially get a name yet, but through ease of simplicity and because it factors heavily into the games, I'll just go ahead and call, say that the organization that Philippa and all the others are setting up is called the Lodge of Sorceresses. Uh, and that's why I don't have to just say the Cabal or something, I just say the Lodge. You know, this is... Patriotism on another level, much like Diksha was subdued. Patriotism, this is patriotism not of a country but of a concept. Patriotism and belief fully in magic that magic should be upheld by uh, a greater law, uh, uh, you know, and should be superior to all. So the the launch which uh, is to have twelve members, uh, at the meeting currently. Uh, is uh, mm-hmm. Philippa Alhart, Triss Marigold, Kira Metz, Margarita Laxon-Teal, Sabrina Glevisig, Sheila de Tonkerville, Francesca Fenderbear, Sire Far Enit, Francesca Fenderbear uh, being uh, the only elf present. Sire is the only Nilfgaardian guardian present. Uh, and the idea is uh, that uh, they are to have two Nilfgaardians guardians on board, uh, and Francesca was supposed to uh, have uh, one additional elf, so two seats for elves, two seats for Nymph Guardians, the rest of northern mages. However, Francesca bartered for three, which we'll get to later. Uh, in the book, Um, and the 12th chair is, uh, because that will only bring them to 11 members, the 12th chair will remain empty for another reason that we will also get to later, but obviously, as Philippa pointed out, is the first thing being uh, brought up as an issue that the Lodge uh, must deal with. And effectively, what you have is a a Illuminati-style secret organization, but with a CIA mentality of patriotism at all costs what they intend to do is make sure magic is forefront in all things they don't care about politics in the necessarily the same way others care about they even talk about this of political neutrality and apoliticalness of how the idea of the launch essentially isn't a political matter that it wants to ensure magic is sustained and not abused and corrupted. The problem is, is that magic inherently is intertwined with politics, and because of the way the mages are, you know, each being an advisor to a king, that therefore they are entwined with politics. So therefore, is there such a thing as political neutrality in this situation? Can that even exist? Um, And how political neutrality effectively uh, is seen as unachievable and foolish by those who are in political matters. So by declaring it apolitical, they all laugh at. Philippa intends it to be apolitical, but I think deep down she knows that that's ridiculous and that's not possible, at least as far as the way this organization is designed to work. They have a, a northern majority, two elves, soon to be anyway, and soon to be two Guardians. They are trying to encompass the entire continent into this lodge of only women, um, because it is believed that men are impulsive and emotional and cannot be trusted with this kind of stuff. Um, it's basically Sapkowski taking patriarchal ideas turning it on its face, making it matriarchal and showing us how ludicrous it is. You ever see those like uh, stupid sexist comments about how uh, the US should never have a female president because of whatever um, and it's it's always ridiculous and stupid? This is the exact argument that those people are using to say that women shouldn't be in control the same that the Lodge is using the same men shouldn't be in control. It basically shows you the absurdity of the patriarchal system and how sexism does nothing but divide this, whereas we are better as equals on the same footing working together to create a better world. Of course, the is, uh, you know mission isn't exactly altruistic. It is for the benefit of magic and magic above all, and depending on who's at the lead, that can change. You know, what they believe, uh, you know, what constitutes as magic, what constitutes as putting magic first, etc. And I talked about that Philippa, one of the more interesting things about her is she is not evil. She's pure neutrality. Um, And, you know, she's, um, she's selfish. She at times can be super mean. But she's always looking out for the interests of something that she believes in a greater good, as Gault said in Blood of Elves. And the thing is, is that ultimately, you know, while she has a sick and twisted view on things, it is understandable how she comes to these conclusions. And it's a political reality that sometimes you have to think that way. And while it would be wonderful to say we shouldn't and couldn't and uh, and that we could be better... I want to believe in that world, too, but I doubt that it will ever exist. And I guarantee you, right now, there are people in government in well-regarded countries of the Western world that think exactly like Philippa. Um, And that's not necessarily a condemnation. It is a sad fact of our reality that the ends justify the means, and selfish ideals can net. A positive. It's ultimately your moral viewpoint whether you believe that positive is worth it. I would like to think it's not, but that is the point of the character: is to analyze and say, could you deal with it? Could you, would you be okay with it? And if you were in their position, would you do the same thing? It's not to cast a moral judgment; and it's there to ask the question of what you would do, and is it okay? Um, And I I think that is very important to note as Philippa's you know formation of the launch comes foremost now um and what that all means for the future and uh, I also like how there's like the differences between the northern mages and the guardian mages. The North guardian mages aren't as concerned with appearance or politics as they are. They uh as the northern mages they are kept on a leash. Um they are uh treated as subservient to the emperor uh and held close to his chest. So uh the the way they act and the way that they appear is entirely antithetical to the northern mages of. De- decadence and depravity, and I talked about in Time of Contempt when that was really showcased at Thaned. Um and we will come back to that later as more and more information about uh, Nilfgaardian mages you know, comes to the forefront, of how those different cultures influence the way mages are decadent, but also less so in Nilfgaard, and the way that, the way that they both contrast and complement each other. Um, and, of course, Isaiya looking exactly like a traditional fairy tale witch was a nice touch. I thought that was cute. Uh, complete with her having a cat. You know, this, this chapter is really getting us into a place where um, showing the aftershocks of last book, catching us up to speed on some stuff, introducing new characters, and getting the ball rolling on Geralt's character arc. This is the Geralt book. So it's a fine start, in despite Baptism of Fire not being my favorite book in the series, it does contain one of my favorite chapters. So we will get there when we get there. There's also this sense of debt. Debt as, flowing through this chapter in particular, of debt as something we do to ourselves as well as to others. A scene has this entire monologue about how we are all indebted to ourselves, and that's how what causes personal growth and change. Um, and... That made me think back to um, a scene from Babylon 5, which I covered on this podcast, of uh, when Lordian is talking to Sheridan, and Sheridan says the first obligation of every prisoner is to escape. That is the moral obligation of a prisoner. And Lordian fights back at him and goes, we're all a prisoner of the something, prisoner of love, prisoner of hope, pr- uh, you know, a, a prisoner of ambition. Does someone who is deeply in love have the moral obligation to escape from that love? Uh, it's all about point of view and all about the way these debts within us um, basically cause us to move forward and grow and change. And we're seeing that in a way throughout everybody in this chapter, from Milva with her debt to the Dryads to Geralt and his debt to Ciri. Um, to Dijkstra his debt to Philippa, Philippa and her debt to uh, the mages that helped her at Thanid, etc., etc., Um, and so, uh, we got an interesting new status quo from this chapter that will affect things going forward in very interesting ways. Um, as I said, As a Fire has one of my favorite chapters, it's not my favorite book, but also The Launch is one of my favorite aspects of the Witcher world in general, so I'm super happy to get to it, uh, and I shall see you next time. Until then, Bye.